So this morning we are starting a new series. Uh, a new series that, to be honest, it sounded better when I wrote it, but it's uh, <laughs> Revitalization Refresh. And what I was getting at is this idea that uh, each year uh, we go through the Christian year. And so it begins with the season of Advent and Christmas, and now we're in the season of Epiphany, and how we wrap our lives around the life of Jesus. And rather than relying on Google to order our lives and Google Calendar or Outlook Calendar, that we rely on the seasons of the Christian year to remind us, to keep us in time with the Lord. And so right now is the first Sunday of the season of Advent, or sorry, the season of Epiphany. Epiphany is the Latin word that gets at the, um, uh, gets at the idea of, of realization. It's actually Latin for a realization, realizing who Jesus is again. And so we spend this time, we come back to the stories of Jesus. We come back to the events of his life, and we realize again who Jesus is. And so this, for me, is one of my favorite times of year, is this uh, from Advent until Easter, actually Advent until the season of Pentecost, um, because we focus in, we gather again around the stories of Jesus. And for some people, as I've, I've over the years, I've heard some people say, like, oh, really? Like, we did this, the Gospels last year and the year before that. And, I mean, I've heard these stories of Jesus since I was a kid. And, and I think it can be easy for us to take these stories of Jesus for granted. You know, sometimes people say, like, wouldn't it be better if we had some really great teaching on some obscure part of the Bible and, you know, you unpack some new reality for us? But I love coming to the stories of Jesus. I think it's so important for us as followers of Jesus each year to gather around these stories. Uh, it reminds me of when I was in high school. I played American football. And each year at the beginning of the season, my coach, we had to do these things called grass drills, which was really, it seems really basic, rudimentary stuff. Like we didn't even have ads on, no ball. You just up, down, roll over, back, forward, all this stuff. Grass drills. And I thought they were kind of dumb, actually, because what does this have to do with football? And then I heard that actually those drills, my coach got them from Vince Lombardi, who was one of the greatest uh, coaches of all time. And even the Green Bay Packers, these professional football players, each year they started off with grass drills too, the basics, getting back to the fundamentals, getting back to the center. And so that's for us what I kind of was thinking about this last week is that as we focus on the season of Epiphany, on Jesus again, um, these are for us like grass drills, getting back to the center of our faith, to Jesus. And it's good for us to hear these stories again because they keep us gathered around Jesus. But I was thinking too, like I really love this time of year because rather than coming, with Jesus, or coming to Scripture with a topic, looking for answers, so for example, a topical sermon might be, you know, how do we handle our money, which is important? Or how do we handle our relationships, which is important? Or Lord, how do we handle all sorts of things about life? In this time of year, I come to the text and I start listening for what the text is teaching me, sometimes even asking or raising questions that I wasn't even thinking about. And so I started reading this uh, week on the story of Jesus' baptism. That's, I mean, most of the church um, for around the world will be um, hearing again the story of Jesus' baptism. And begin asking, Lord, what are, you teaching, what are you teaching me in this? And I wonder if any of you are thinking about this as we will get into Jesus' story of his baptism. What, Lord, what are we supposed to take away from this? What are we supposed to learn from this? You know, it's interesting because if you look in your bulletins, uh, this passage, it's only three verses. It's just on the inside, so it's really short. You know, Jason, it's only this big. What are we going to get out of this? Or 
to the fact that it, this story of the Jesus' baptism, this same story is in Matthew's gospel, it's in Mark's gospel, it's in Luke's gospel. John mentions Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism is a big thing, so what should we learn from this? What are we supposed to take away? Well, if you would open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, verse 21 to 23, or if you'd like to, you can look at it in your bulletin here as well and read this with me. So this is uh, after Jesus has been born and it, talks, it had already talked some about the ministry of John the Baptist. It says, or Luke tells us, that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was, not a, was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Can we take just a moment to pray, to ask the Holy Spirit to guide us, to, to teach us? If you would, pray with me. Holy Spirit, we pray for your help. Pray for your help in hearing your word. We pray for your help in applying it to our lives. Please speak to us again. We depend on you, Holy Spirit. Amen. So, as I am reading this passage, first I was thinking, you know, on the surface, this passage is pretty amazing. I mean, just on the surface of it, we hear this amazing endorsement of God the Father, the voice from heaven, speaking to Jesus. Did you just lose me? Did I? Okay, okay. Um, speaking to his son, Jesus. And, you know, it's pretty amazing. I start hearing, you know, son of God, and, and I think in this particular case, God is saying something more than just, you know, generally, you know, we are all children of God. He is saying, Jesus, my son, my particular, my unique son. You are my son whom I love. In you I'm so pleased. And I hear this uh, endorsement for Jesus. This, this is God's way of saying, Jesus, I am totally behind you. The things that I have set for you to do, I am right there with you. I am behind you. I'm so pleased with you. And then you start thinking about it too. It's a pretty big thing. I mean, God, the creator of everything, the Father in heaven, is speaking directly, not through a prophet or through an angel, but the voice, his voice, speaking directly, saying, you are my son, and you I am so pleased. So not only that, so the first thing I realized, this is a pretty big deal. God's speaking. There's only uh, one other time in the Gospels where this happens is when Jesus is on the mountain, his face shines like the sun at the transfiguration. So this is a pretty momentous point here. God is speaking directly to Jesus about him, saying, I am behind you, son. But I also realized, too, that it's pretty important, too, because the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. It says it floated down in bodily form, kind of floated like a, like a dove. I don't know that it necessarily looked like a dove, but it came down like a dove, like kind of gliding down. The Spirit came on Jesus and anointed him. The Spirit of God anointed Jesus. Now, uh, if you read the, New, uh, the Old Testament all, you realize that being anointed by God's Holy Spirit is a big deal. Kings were anointed, prophets were anointed, leaders. And so the Holy Spirit has come and anointed Jesus. But not only that, not only does it signify what God is doing in Jesus, but also, if we, from what we know about the Holy Spirit, from what Paul has taught the churches in um, uh, Philippi and Corinth, and Corinth and Rome, is that the Holy Spirit endows with power and with gifts. The Holy Spirit has empowered Jesus. Now, it's funny to say this because I think, well, he's Jesus, right? He's God. How does the Holy Spirit give Jesus, who is God, who is all-powerful, even more power? I don't have the answer for that. 
But all I know is that the Holy Spirit is here at work as well. The Holy Spirit has anointed and empowered Jesus. So this is just the obvious stuff. This is just the things on the surface. And it's pretty amazing. It's a pretty amazing endorsement. This is my son, and the Holy Spirit is on Jesus. But also, too, when you start to scratch below the surface just a little bit, you start to hear the echoes of the Old Testament. The first thing is when Jesus is praying and the heavens open and the voice says, you are my son. This is actually, um, God is quoting uh, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is uh, a coronation psalm or a psalm that would be read in ancient Israel when a king had received his crown. And it was also um, throughout, after that, um, over time it became a psalm that was associated with the Messiah, with the Savior, with the great king that God would bring one day from the house of David. So Psalm 2 has took on huge amounts of meaning. Over time, people began to see all these connections with the Messiah. And Psalm 2 is actually one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament because Jesus is this Messiah. So God saying, you are my son, is actually a quote from Psalm 2. If you would, if you want to open your Bibles to Psalm 2, that would be great. Also, too, it's on this white sheet in, in your bulletin and insert here. So this is uh, the whole psalm. If you would, listen to it read again. <clears throat> the psalm reads, so actually this would be read when a king was crowned. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them with his, in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son. Did you catch that? You are my son. This is the part where God is quoting. And today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Now, I, I tend to um, believe that when a particular passage is read, or a particular passage is quoted in the New Testament, it might just be a few words. But I believe, and I mean this is kind of um, this is historical, that the people of Israel, they were an oral culture, and they would recite the scriptures again and again. And so, you know, we have Bibles with chapters and verses, and we maybe read like a verse, and we focus on that like as a devotion. But I believe that the, in ancient times that they would read whole, por- whole portions, and so they would often read all of Psalm 2. And so for to quote even one small piece of, of Psalm 2, I think that actually God is implying the whole thing. I mean, think about like a song. You know, if you hear a song and you hear just one line of it, but you know the song so well, how many of you keep on singing or think of the whole song, right? I think that's what's happening here. Is that God says, you are my son, and he's implying this whole thing of, of Psalm 2. And I started thinking about Psalm 2. What is Psalm 2 teaching or what was I hearing from it? And I was realizing is that, one, is that this king is an agent, is an agent of the Lord God. So this king doesn't just get a crown and then go do whatever they feel like. This king, this king gets a crown and does what the Lord God teaches them to do, what the Lord God instructs them to do. 
But not only that, but the Lord actually blesses this king and works through this king. So the two are connected. The, the agent or the king does what the Lord asks him to do. And the Lord blesses this king to do it. Do you see kind of the connection? That not only is Jesus um, receiving God's blessing to do what he's doing, but he's actually going to do exactly what his Father in heaven has told him to do, has revealed to him. So this isn't where a king just gets a crown and says, okay, now go on and you know, make yourself rich. That's not what a king is supposed to do in the Old Testament. A king of Israel is supposed to be following the Lord God, to be serving the Lord and serving the people of God. And the Lord will bless them in that. So I see that as I read this psalm too, I realize that Jesus is this king. Okay? But it goes on actually. Because in this passage we realize that not only is Jesus king, but we also get a glimpse of the kind of king that he is. Because God didn't just quote Psalm 2, he actually quotes some of Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 42, it talks too about uh, the kind of king that he will be. You know, because the idea of Jesus being a king, that's not new to us, right? Most of you have heard that before, right? That Jesus is king. But what was challenging for me, or what was interesting for me, was the kind of king Jesus is. See, in the ancient, uh, around the time of Jesus, of his birth uh, and his life, the, the idea of uh, Mashiach, or Messiah, was that they would be a great king from the house of David. That they would be the sort of king who would come, uh, be a military champion. He would be enormously powerful. Uh, and he would, at very least, throw the Romans out of Israel. And then Israel would be the greatest nation and all the kings would come to Israel. And so you can understand how, from a Jewish perspective, Jesus, who was born in a stable, as we've talked about the last few weeks, um, to peasant parents, growing up as a carpenter, uh, doesn't really fit their idea of who the Messiah is supposed to be. But Jesus is this servant of the Lord. And we'll see this here in a minute in Isaiah 42 of what the servant looks like. And it's interesting to see how God is quoting this. So if you will look with me at Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9, or it's also on the, the back sheet of this uh, white paper here. This is what, uh, in the prophet Isaiah, there's a few, they're called servant songs. There's actually four of them. And this is one of them, where God talks or speaks to Isaiah, and Isaiah speaks about uh, the servant of the Lord. So he says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands put their hope. This is what, the, this is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. I the Lord have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give glory to another or praise to idols. See the former things I have taken place and the new things I declare before they spring into being. I announce them to you. The part I want us to especially pay attention to 
is the very first verse. It says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Does that not sound a lot like, This is my son whom I love, in whom I delight? It's a quote of Isaiah 42. And I began to realize as I was studying this passage that not only do we realize that Jesus is a king, like the kings described in Psalm 2, but he's also the servant of the Lord, like we, like we see described in Isaiah 42. So Jesus is not just a great king, but he is a servant king, putting together the idea of king and the servant of the Lord together in one person. Do you see how those are coming together right here at Jesus' baptism? The voice from heaven is speaking this and putting them together. That not only do we realize that Jesus is king, but we start to see the kind of king that he is. And to understand this servant of the Lord, I mean, some of the famous quotes, I mean, Isaiah 53, um, by his wounds we have been healed, this servant who goes, who sacrifices everything, um, and to heal the people. This is one of the servant songs as well. But in Isaiah 42, if you want it, if we just break this down, just the first two verses, it says, Here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And I have to think, when I start thinking about you know, bringing justice to the nations, I don't know about you, but my first thought, I think actually I tend to read into that, he will bring retribution to the nations. He will get everybody back for all the bad things that they've done kind of this old school idea of justice. And I think that my assumption there is wrong. The way that I tend to interpret that, I don't think that's what God is saying. When he actually brings justice, it will bring justice for both sides, for everyone. Not just my justice because I was wounded, but justice for everyone. And I started thinking about how we get justice in the world today, the kind of justice that we bring about. And I realize that a lot of times our justice looks a lot more like retribution. I think about how, actually, I was thinking about how things like, especially the situation in the Middle East right now with the West, you know, one side does something to the other, and then in, term, in the name of justice, the other side, you know, you know, blows up a car or a building. And then to get justice, the other side, you know, orders airstrikes to go back and bomb a city. And then to get justice, and it just goes back and forth, right? And I started thinking about how we... Um, we oftentimes get duped into thinking that, you know, if we just bomb them enough, or if we bomb the other side enough, that, that they'll just stop. That violence will somehow beget peace. And how's that working out for us? How does that work out for us as people? Violence does not bring peace. Whether it's my two sons in the bathroom when it's time to brush teeth, and And dad, he bumped me. Well, dad, I bumped him. I didn't mean to, but then he pushed me, so I punched him. Like, (laughs) it just escalates. And it's the same thing, whether it's an airstrike or a car bomb or brothers pushing each other when it's time to, to brush their teeth. When we change justice into retribution, it goes wrong. But the servant won't get justice that way. It says that he, he won't cry out in the streets. And I was starting to think, and I was hearing this as, as the Lord saying, or as Isaiah is speaking about this servant of the Lord, that he's not going to have to go through the streets telling everybody how great he is. 
He's not going to have to go trying to explain to everyone or convince everyone how wonderful he is. But actually, he'll be quiet about it. He'll be humble about it. I said, too, that, uh, that a bruised reed he will not break. And that's, you know, for us, we don't have many bruised reeds around here, but that's like, think of like a, braid of, a blade of grass that already has kind of a crease in it and how easy it is to just knock it over. He said, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick, a wick that is almost out, just a little last bit of smoke coming up, he will not pinch it out. These are word images speaking about how gentle the servant will be. And I started comparing that to the leaders of our world. <laughs> how gentle are the leaders of our states? How gentle are the leaders of our industries? And yet it speaks about this servant of the Lord, that he will be gentle. That he will be powerful in his gentleness. That he will be praiseworthy in his humility. That he won't rely on ambition and all those other things, but out of his faithfulness, he will bring justice. And that's if you look at verse 2 with me. It says, In faithfulness he will bring, sorry, verse 3, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. And I was looking at this word in Hebrew. It's emet. In emet he will bring forth mishpat, or, or justice, God's justice. And Emmet, here they translate it as faithfulness. In other places it's translated as truth. But I started thinking about how astounding this is. Then in faithfulness, the servant of the Lord will bring forth justice. Not by force, or by his finances, or by his fanfare, but by faithfulness. Not by bombs or tanks or swords or spears, but in faithfulness, obedience to the Lord God, faithfulness, he will bring about justice. And I started thinking about that, that God in his faithfulness, that Jesus, the servant of the Lord, in his faithfulness, he will bring about justice. And I started to have this imaginary conversation with someone who saying, you know, Jason, that's really easy for you to say. In faithfulness will bring forth justice in your cozy little church, in a cozy little part of Southeast BC. But what about the real world? You know, places like Aleppo or Chicago or Florida. What about these places? You know, is faithfulness really going to bring justice in those places? Come on, how pragmatic is that? And I have to say, you know, if your goal, if our goal is to get retribution, faithfulness is horrible for getting retribution. I agree with that. If you're talking about justice and what you really mean is getting somebody back for what they did to you, faithfulness is horrible for that. You're right. But if we're talking about justice, about mishpat, about God's justice, Faithfulness is beautiful for that. And actually, faithfulness is even better than that. Not only does faithfulness get us justice, I believe, out of faith, but faithfulness actually has brought us grace. I mean, think about this servant of the Lord, who we're talking about here. 
What if Jesus had come to get justice for those who had sinned against God? For us. We don't actually get justice. In faithfulness, we get grace. Despite our sin, despite the things we've done to one another, despite the things, the ways we've rebelled against God, because of Jesus' faithfulness, not only do we get justice, we get grace more than justice. And so some will say, you know, Jason, it's really nice to say, especially in a church on Sunday morning, that faithfulness brings justice. But I believe that actually it does. And by justice, I mean justice for everybody involved, not just retribution to get back at somebody for the way they hurt me, for the way they hurt us. But actually justice that doesn't result in retaliation. And I started thinking about the most influential person in all of human history, Jesus. You know, I think about how, you know, when Jesus said, you know, I have to go to Jerusalem that the Son of Man may suffer and die, and Peter said, may it never be, Lord. You know, I hear Peter saying kind of the same thing, Jesus, like, it's not how things work in the world. You know, if you want to win, you've got to be strong, and you've got to take it by force. You know, suffering and dying, that's not going to help anybody. That's just going to be the end of it. Paul had the same conversation with the church in Corinth. He said, you know, Christ crucified, that's foolishness to the Greeks. That's a stumbling block to the Jews. But to us, it's the words of life. He was talking to a Corinthian church who was having difficulty with the humble beginnings of their faith. They were a well-to-do group of people. Well, some of them were. And they were having a hard time with this suffering servant of a Messiah. They were more used to the idea of a Savior who rode in on a white horse after defeating the enemy army. And yet Jesus is the most influential person who's ever lived, period. And he brought justice through faithfulness. Not force, not finances, not fanfare, but faithfulness. Think of how Jesus has changed the world through faithfulness. So the next time someone says to us, you know, well, that's really nice, you know, Christian. That's really nice that you'd say, like, let's, you know, rely on faithfulness to bring about justice. You know, me, I'm going to rely on force or my weapon or my military. Let us remember, let us not be discouraged because the most influential person in the whole world brought about justice through faithfulness, not through violence. So if Jesus is our kind of king, this servant king, then I would say that all of our understanding of what leadership should look like should be based on this kind of king, on Jesus, our servant king. So when we start looking at the type of leaders that we follow, let us, as followers of Jesus, follow men and women who are faithful, who are humble, who make sacrifices for the people that they serve, like our Lord Jesus. You know, I know the rest of the world is pretty enamored with somebody who takes charge, with someone who's got grand ideas, who's happy to use force to get what they want. That's the way our world is. I don't disagree with that. But let us, as followers of Jesus, 
Let us follow the people who bring about justice by faithfulness, through sacrifice and through humility. And when we're called upon to lead, whether it's in our family, in our church, in our community, or at our job, let us lead as servant leaders who are humble, who aren't looking for necessarily a pat on the back, who sacrifice, who make sacrifices for the sake of those that we are leading, and who lead through faithfulness, that in faithfulness we trust that God's justice will come. When it's up to us to lead, let us lead this way. And when it's up to us to mentor the next generation in the way they lead, let us encourage them to be faithful over ambitious. I mean, it's fine to have goals, but when that starts to oh, trump or to get over or to, to move above our desire to be faithful, then it's going wrong. Let us honor faithfulness in our young leaders over ambition. Let us honor humility over the idea of, of um, making yourself great at the expense of others. Let us honor sacrifice. Let us teach our leaders to sacrifice for the sake of others. That, that as a leader, their job is to help those they're serving to do better, not to stand on them or climb over them to make themselves great. This idea of Jesus as a servant king should shape the way that we understand leaders. It should shape the kind of leaders that we follow, the kind of leaders that we honor. It should shape the kind of leaders that we are, that we lead like our kind of king, like Jesus, servant leadership, and that we train those who are coming up, the next generation of leaders, that we honor the things that are consistent with Jesus, humility and sacrifice and faithfulness. I was thinking about this and all of this coming out of Jesus' baptism. You know, the stuff that's on the surface of God endorsing him. This is my son whom I love, and him I'm so pleased. And the things that we hear under the surface of how these words of God actually are connected to Old Testament, to Psalm 2, that this is our king, and also, too, to the kind of king he is, that he is a servant like the servant described in Isaiah. And I start thinking about the way this should shape our understanding of leaders. And I started dreaming about what this world would be like if there were more servant leaders like our King Jesus. Think about that for a moment. If all those leaders who were grabbing at power, who were using force and violence to get their way to improve their position, what if they stopped doing that? What if they became humble leaders who were seeking justice through faithfulness? And they made sacrifices for the sake of those they were leading. Imagine how different our world would be. Imagine the justice that would prevail. Not just justice for me and mine, but justice for everyone. And I know it's, <laughs> it's foolish, right? <laughs> it's foolishness to talk like this. I mean, just not the way the world works. But you know what? God uses the, uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. That's what Paul was reminding the church in Corinth. And what if it begins here with us in this church? What if it begins here with us? That we value leaders that are humble, that rely on faithfulness to bring forth justice? What if we were the kind of leaders the next time we're leading in our community or our family or our work 
that we lead as faithful leaders, making sacrifice for the sake of others? What if it began to change our families, our community, even just a little bit? It would be worth it. This is what I was realizing this week as I've been focusing on Jesus, as I've been reading the story of his baptism and thinking, Lord, what are you teaching me in this? I've been realizing that Jesus, not only is he a king, but I begin to realize that he is our kind of king, a servant king, who will bring forth faithfulness, sorry, who will bring forth justice through his faithfulness. Amen.